Please turn with me to the text for this morning's sermon. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 to chapter 14, verse 5. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. So faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Make love your aim, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to man but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, he who prophesies speaks to man for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophecy. Prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, revealing the secret things of the heart, laying us all bare before him with whom we have to do. May all resistance give way, Father, before this power as your spirit comes now and wings the word home to every heart. I pray that it will be applied by your spirit in ways undreamed of by me and in ways that only you could tailor it for the needs of this hour. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen. What I'd like to do now for two Sundays is focus on the spiritual manifestation called prophecy. And I want to ask two questions, one this Sunday and one next Sunday. This Sunday's question is basically, is the gift of prophecy still in action today? And the one for next Sunday is, if so, what is it and how do you use it? What I want to do first this morning is kind of an introduction to this question of whether or not prophecy is still valid and active today is 
try to build a bridge between last two weeks' concern on healings and this two weeks' concerns on prophecies. And so let me quote last week's text and try to show an interesting connection that I have seen. James 5.14, Is there any among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of, the, and the prayer of faith will save the sick man. And I suggested last week that when the elders gather around a sick person's bed, sometimes God gives, the, gives them a gift of faith described in Roman, um, 1 Corinthians 12.9 and uh, 1 Corinthians 13.2, though I have faith to remove mountains. Sometimes God gives an un- unusual strength of faith to believe for healing. And that gift of faith results in the prayer of faith to which is promised healing in James 5.15. Now, I think God may heal without that prayer. I don't think God is bound only to respond positively to, quote, the prayer of faith if I'm understanding it correctly. But he has bound himself to respond to that prayer, namely the prayer of faith, which I said was rooted in the gift of faith. So my picture is this. The elders gather around, or some of them, gather around this mat or this bed where the sick person is lying, and they pray, they pause, they wait upon the Lord in seeking what manifestation of the Spirit might enable them to minister most effectively here? And the reason I, I'm, I'm drawn to say it that way is because the text does go on to say, and if the person's committed any sins, they'll be forgiven. And I don't think forgiveness is an automatic or mechanical thing, and therefore I think there's some dynamics going on there whereby the elders are praying that this person would be made aware of needs that they have to confess. And then the person confesses, and then they're forgiven, and then... Perhaps other ministries are given at that moment. So this is not a kind of mechanical thing where you walk in the room, say a prayer, walk out, good, we've done our, our duty. Rather, they are gathered there for ministry, they're praying, they're waiting upon the Lord, sins are brought to mind, they're confessed, they're forgiven. And I'm suggesting that sometimes in that moment, God begets tremendous faith. And as a result of that tremendous faith, prayers become the prayer of faith. And then God, in response to the prayer of faith, does a mighty work of healing. Now, I don't think faith in the Bible is sorcery or enchantment or voodoo, which it would be if you could make God do anything you had enough gumption to think he would do. You see, in order for faith to be biblical faith, it's got to rest on a revelation of God's will. If faith isn't resting on a revelation of what God intends to do, it's hocus pocus. You know, as I can walk up to you and say, you know, I can make you do a flip. I just believe you will. That's not biblical faith. 
Biblical faith is a humble response to a God-given intention or revelation. That's why I'm a Christian. He's told me in the Bible things that he's going to do for people that will trust him to do those things. So I trust him because I want him to do those things to me. It's built on a revelation. Now, my conception then of really what's happening at the side of the sick person's bed is that the elders are there praying for God to guide them in their prayers and how to pray and whether any sins need to be confessed. And if there is the gift of faith that leads to the prayer of faith, that leads to gifts of healing, that leads to the man being raised up, something's got to be the basis of that gift of faith. It's got to rest on something. And I think it rests upon a revelation or a reminder of something God intends to do. And one way to describe that is to call it prophecy. And so you see the link up in my mind between gifts of healings in the context of James 5 and prophecy. Now, I admit very openly that there's a lot of guesswork going on here because it doesn't say anything about prophecy in James 5.15. There's nothing explicit there. I'm spinning out inferences, and that's dangerous to do. But I'll tell you one of the reasons I'm emboldened to press this inference as far as I have, right back from healing to prayer of faith to gift of faith to prophecy. Why, why am I emboldened to do that? Because I have seen another instance where something like this happened in the New Testament. And I invite you to turn to 1 Timothy 4.14 with me. Now, the situation here is that Paul is talking to this young clone and uh, about his call to the ministry and what happened when he was ordained or whatever they called it in those days. Now, look at this. This is real interesting. Verse 14, 1 Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you... And the RSV says, by prophetic utterance, literally it's through a prophecy, which was given you through a prophecy, when the elders, the council of elders, the elders, when the elders laid their hands upon you. Now let's just step back and, and think about this for a moment. Notice three things. One, the elders are gathered around Timothy, he's probably kneeling, and their hands are laying, lying upon him. Second, during this moment, evidently, God speaks a word of prophecy to an elder or several elders or all of them at once. I don't know how it happened. But a prophecy came concerning Timothy. Third, through that prophecy, it says, Timothy received a gift. We don't know what the gift was. I'm inclined to think maybe evangelism because of some things said elsewhere in the book. But it could have been administration. It could have been teaching. Um, could have been an unusual sense of courage. He seemed to be a timid type. Anyway, God did something to Timothy at that moment, which later on he was to stir up. 
Now, in this, just notice the relationship or the comparison between what was going on there and what was going on with regard to healing in James 5.15. The elders are gathered in both cases around the person, probably with laying on of hands. It doesn't say laying on of hands. It just says anointing with oil in the case of the sick person. And they're praying and uh, a gift is given or a gift is applied. The sick person receives the benefit of the gift of healing. And Timothy receives a gift of something that is valuable later on in his ministry. Now, the ministry gift for Timothy came through a prophecy. Somehow. I don't know how that happened, but maybe they're praying there. And uh, they've got their hands laid on him. And they're just saying, Lord, what are you going to do with this man in the future? What are you going to bless him with? How are you going to use this man? Would you encourage him by helping us to sense what your call in his life is? And they pause. And the Lord brings into their minds a strong sense. This man's going to be an amazing evangelist. Or this man's going to be a powerful teacher. And one of them speaks the word and says, I sense that the Lord is blessing you with a gift of teaching, Timothy. You will confirm that in your life. I just pray teaching into you right now. Something like that. I don't know. But it came through a prophecy and then through the elders and then into Timothy. And I'm just inclined to think that something like that is going on as the elders gather around the sick person. Because it says the prayer of faith will heal the sick person. And that kind of absoluteness inclines me to think that a gift of faith, that unusual faith beyond ordinary faith, is being granted here, according to 1 Corinthians 12.9 and 1 Corinthians 13.2, and grounding that faith is not any hocus-pocus, enchantment, sorcery, mumbo-jumbo, voodoo, self-will belief. It's revelation. It's word of God. Somehow, either appropriated from Scripture for the moment or given right then through God's sovereign spirit. So my point in all this is simply to say, there's a link up in these gifts. When you start making love your aim and want to use the gifts for the sake of love, you know what you're going to run into? Frustration at how to make choices about whom to pray for, when to pray, how to pray, how long to pray. Have you ever experienced things like this? That you have 50 good choices in front of you in any given day of what to do with your life? And you go to the Bible and you appropriate biblical principles and you memorize scripture and you meditate all day long on the Bible and you pray for divine and spiritual wisdom and at the end you've got three choices, equally wise, equally loving as far as you and your finite mind can see. What do you do? How do you make choices like that? I'm driven again and again to ask God, say, Lord, I have done all I know to do by way of becoming a wise person through meditation on the scriptures. I've done all I need, all I know to do by way of investigating situations and examining circumstances and asking wise friends. I've exhausted all the biblical guidelines I know to exhaust. I don't know which way to go. I'm not God. That's what drives me to wonder whether or not God might have in 
some circumstances a way to communicate to me his will that is above the natural. I don't know how many of these are left. I ordered 50 of them in thinking that, well, if I could get 50 people to read this book, that'd be great. If, if we run out this week, I'll, I'll have them uh, overnighted here for next Sunday. But this is Let God Guide You Daily by Wesley Duell. This is the most balanced treatment of the subjective sense of guidance through impressions and promptings and the objective means of guidance through scripture and prayer and counsel and circumstantial evidence. So we, tend to, we tend to jump into two camps here. I'm sure these camps must be brought together. This book does it better than anything I've seen. I commend it highly. I hope we run out after this service. We sell them, I think, for six fifty. We had to buy them for six. I think they're nine ninety five or something. We don't make any money on these. I just want you to read something that spiritually has been very helpful in my own life. Now, the point is, when you have to make choices about praying for healing, when you want to know whether or when you should ever ask for some extraordinary sign or miracle in anybody's life, when you have this afternoon with a dozen other people to make a choice which two contractors to go with when the bids are almost the same. I mean, suppose this afternoon when the group gets together to talk about the two contractors and they say, well, let's make a list of pros and cons. And they write them all down. And then they put the numbers beside each other and they all look at them and say, man, these are great, both of them. What should they do this afternoon? Should they flip a coin, draw straws, Maybe. I, I'm, I would rather, though, commend to them, and I'm sure some of you are here, so you can take this as pastoral counsel. I'm not going to come to that meeting. Um, pray. And I just commend to that group that they not just open in prayer, but that they bathe it in prayer. That they have season of prayer at the beginning, and then before they make their decision at the end, they have another season of prayer. And they would just ask God to show them what to do. And see if God might, in a remarkable way, cause to well up in each of their hearts a unified, strong consensus of which way he's going. This is a very important decision this afternoon. Let's be praying. Who can tell me when this meeting is going to be? Dan? Three o'clock. Okay, let's pray, all of us, at three to four, whenever. Now, the point of this sermon, all that introduction, I'm just about out of time. Isn't that terrible? 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8 is the point. Of the message, that is, the question posed to be answered in this message is when Paul says, Love never ends, as for prophecies, they will pass away. When will they pass away? That's the question for this morning's message. When will prophecies pass away? As for tongues, they will cease, as for knowledge, it will pass away. Verses 9 and 10 give the reason for why prophecies are going to pass away. I think it means the gift of prophecy. Jesus said uh, nothing's going to pass away until it's fulfilled. That's not the sense that's being spoken of here. The sense here is the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, the gift of knowledge, these extraordinary gifts uh, that were in action in the church. They are going to pass away. When? Verse 9 says... The reason they're going to pass away is for our knowledge is imperfect, or we know in part, and our prophecy is imperfect, or we prophesy in part, for, here it comes, here's the reason, 
When the perfect comes, the imperfect or partial is going to pass away. So the analogy to have in your mind is something like this. When it's dark and the sun is around on the other side of the globe, we turn on street lamps. And they space the street lamps out so that you can pretty much get between them with some light. It gets kind of dark and fuzzy in between. But we light up lights, and they're not very good, but I'm glad they're there on my street. Last night at 11, there was just shouting and anger. Oh, when they get so angry outside, I just pray, oh, God, come down with peace. And they were shouting and angry, I thought. The police pulled up across the street, and I was just glad there was a street light there. But when the sun comes up, what happens to the street lights? They turn them off. And when the perfect comes, the imperfect will be turned off. Gift of prophecies go off, gift of tongues go off, gift of knowledge goes off when the sun rises. Now, what is the coming of the perfect in verse 10? That is the key question. Because that's when the lights go off. When the sun rises, the light goes off. When does verse 10 mean? That's when prophecies will cease. And not until then, I believe, you can say that. Now, there are two suggested interpretations. The first one is, uh, has a strong, respected tradition behind it that says the perfect coming, in verse 10, is the coming of the completion of the Bible. That when the New Testament, the perfect revelation of God, is completed, then prophecy, tongues, and knowledge cease. Because we now have God's complete, full revelation sufficient for the life of the church in this book. And you don't need those gifts anymore. Let me quote a pastor that I respect very highly out on the East Coast. When scripture is completed, then the church will have revelation thoroughly suited to her condition on earth. Our completed Bible is perfect in the sense that it is utterly sufficient revelation for all our needs. Paul is saying, when the sufficient comes, the inadequate and partial will be done away. Tongues will vanish away. Knowledge and prophecies will cease at the time that the New Testament is finished. So in verse 10, when it says, the, when the perfect comes, it means when the New Testament comes to completion. And we have our canon of Scripture complete. The second interpretation that also has a great respected tradition behind it says, no, when the perfect come refers to when Jesus comes. The second coming and the bringing of the perfection of the new age, the age to come, the kingdom of God arriving in its fullness. Now, which of those two is correct? Because you see, don't you, what's at stake here? If the first interpretation is correct, that is, prophecies will pass away when the perfect comes, that is, when the New Testament is completed, means they are not valid today. They passed away at about 100, 100 A.D. And there are many people that believe that, and therefore all tongues, all prophecies, and all gifts of knowledge are spurious today. They're not valid. They are somehow an over overly extended experience of emotion, or some would even say demonic. That's one implication if you go the route of saying that prophecies ended with the coming of the New Testament. The other, the other interpretation says that the perfect coming is the coming of Jesus, which would mean that prophecies, tongues, and, 
and gifts of knowledge are going on as genuine and valid expressions of God's truth and revelation now. Let's test these two interpretations in the context. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So he's, com- he's comparing uh, the time of, of uh, tongues and prophecies and knowledge to the time of childishness, childlikeness. And he's comparing the time when they will pass away to adulthood, when they put away childish things. Now, we could dwell there and ponder whether adulthood uh, would signify better a post-New Testament time or a time after the Second Coming. But I think I'm just going to ride over that verse, look at verse 12, which is far more clear, and then come back to it at the end. Let's go to verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. Now this is tremendously helpful, I think, in deciding the question. Because here in verse 12, what we have is the same uh, contrast as we have in verses 9 and 10. I want you to see this real clearly so that you get the flow of the passage. So put it on your thinking camp for another minute here. And let's go back to verse 9. Notice verse 9. Our knowledge is imperfect, or we, we know in part. And then verse 10 is the contrast. When the perfect comes, the imperfect... That imperfect, incomplete knowledge is going to pass away. Now, drop down to verse 12 and you'll see that exact same contrast. Because almost the very same words from verse 9 are used in the second half of verse 12. Notice the second half of verse 12. It says, now I know in part. That's almost exactly the same as verse 9. Now we know in part. And the contrast in the next part of the verse is, then I shall understand fully. And so it's very clear, isn't it, that the contrast of verses 9 and 10 is the same as the contrast in verse 12. You don't have a new topic in verse 12. You have the same topic as in verses 9. The issue is, when will prophecies cease in verse 12? That's the issue, as well as tongues and knowledge. Now, let's just take verse 12 a half at a time. The first half says, now we see, now we see in a mirror dimly. Then, face to face. So the question is, is it more likely that that Paul is saying, now, before the New Testament is written, we see in a mirror dimly, and then after the New Testament, we shall see face to face? Or is it more likely that Paul is saying, now, in this age of sin and imperfection, we see in a mirror dimly, but after Jesus comes and we are transformed into his likeness, we will See face to face. Mirrors in those days, by the way, were not made of glass. They were made of copper or bronze or gold or silver, beaten, shined. And they were not anywhere near as perfect as our images are in mirrors. Our images, we can just see almost perfect. I mean, it's just duplication. But in those, it's like taking your silver platter at home and holding it up. And uh, you can tell it's you it's a good smooth platter but you'd miss complexion things and the hair would be a little out of place and you couldn't tell and that's the way the knowledge is that we have in uh, in this verse I think now there are some clues and 
tip-offs, I think, that seeing face-to-face means seeing God in his unadulterated glory. Uh, In the Old Testament, for example, there are six passages that refer to seeing God face-to-face on rare occasions. In the New Testament, Revelation 22.4 says, In heaven we will see God's face. In 1 John 3.2 it says, When Jesus appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So my conclusion on this first half of verse 12 is that the contrast between seeing fuzzily in a mirror and seeing face-to-face is not a contrast between before and after the New Testament, as though I now today, after the New Testament, see face-to-face. But rather the contrast is between the way we all see now fuzzily in a, in a glass or in a, in a beaten metal mirror and the way we will see when Jesus comes back, namely in tremendously personal, intimate, face-to-face kind of knowledge. The second half of verse 12, I think, is even more clear to that point. It says, Now I know in part, then I shall be understood fully or shall know fully, even as I have been fully understood. Now, is this a contrast between before and after the New Testament or before and after the second coming? And it's real hard for me to imagine that Paul or anybody would say that after the New Testament we understand fully even as we have been fully understood. The contrast there of being fully understood by God is so powerful and so strong that I think the only way to own up to the true intention of this scripture is to say, we will know God the way he knows us. We will know spiritual things the way God knows us. And that doesn't mean omniscience. It just means that what, what you're watching this television of reality in this fallen age, and there's snow all over the screen. And you can make out the story, and it's a terrific story. It's enough to make you jump up and down on the couch. But there's coming a day when the characters in that story are going to step right out of that screen into your living room. No more snow, no more haze, no more fuzz, no more imperfection. I don't mean to say that we can't have true knowledge. I mean our true knowledge is just incomplete. It's got fuzzy edges about it. It, Everything I know can probably be corrected by way of balance and focus and emphasis and completeness, even though we can know true things in this age. So my conclusion with regard to the whole question is that Paul is saying that prophecies will pass away not when the New Testament is completed, but when this age is completed, when the second coming of the Lord is at hand. That's when the perfect comes, verse 10. That's when the speaking and thinking and reasoning like a child will be put away. I think all of our speaking, all of our thinking, and all of our reasoning is like child's play in this age after the New Testament compared to what God has and is and does and will show us in the age to come. Calvin talks about God lisping to his children. It's like we're all little kids on the carpet of the living room, babbling away in our theories and our theologies, and God says, okay, okay, and he comes down on the floor with us and he lisps to us and communicates where we are so that we can understand. But the day is coming when your and my communication Abilities and our understanding abilities and our reasoning abilities are going to take a quantum leap forward 
into the kingdom that will be like a, a, a philosopher in the university compared to a two-year-old on the floor. We are not at the philosopher stage, I guarantee you. Well, the implication of this, as I close, is that the gift of prophecy is still with us. That's my conclusion, because the text says that they will pass away when the perfect comes, and I don't think it's come yet, and therefore I think prophecy is still with us. Which raises, of course, the immense question of what is it, how to exercise it, and that's what next week is about. Is it what I do on Sunday morning? Is it preaching? A lot of people think it's preaching. Is it uh, the gift of a premonition so that we know what's going to happen in Guinea this afternoon and begin to pray about it and then we get a letter from a missionary in a week and that's exactly what was happening and we were praying hard that there was some upheaval there we didn't know about but we all had this strong sense. Is that prophecy? Or is it what you've, many of you have experienced, namely that you are in a crisis situation and you don't know what to say and a word comes to your mind that comforts somebody extraordinarily or you're in a witnessing situation and you're groping for words and God brings a word to mind and you quote the scripture or say the word and boom, conviction of sin happens and they decide for Christ. Is that prophecy? Is it that simple? Or is it that this afternoon when this team meets to decide on which contractor to... Uh, engage that the gift of prophecy is what would happen if they bowed their faces before the Lord, sought Him earnestly for a half an hour, and God spoke. And they knew which one to hire. Is that it? Or is it something common running through all of those? That there's a prophetic dimension there. I don't think that you need to be too worried that we might find that prophecy is so absolutely weird we would have to stop being what we're being in order to own up to the scriptures. So my closing admonition is simply that we all obey chapter 14, verse 1. Make love your aim and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. If you've been tracking with me this morning and you find what I've said compelling, then I think biblical obedience will incline your heart to say, well, I want to prophesy. Because the text says right there that all of us should earnestly desire to prophesy. But my guess is that where most of you are right now, as I commend that desire to you, is you say, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what it is, and therefore I don't know it. And so my inclination is to say the way you obey that command then this week is to want to know. To be indifferent to this gift is disobedience to the Lord, according to Romans, I mean, 1 Corinthians 14.1. Because indifference is the opposite of earnest desire, and earnest desire is commanded in that verse. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you teach us now, this week, to desire what you promise. What will be functioning until the perfect comes. That you show us in a sober balanced way what you mean to do by way of prophecy in our day. Thank you so much, Father, for your word, without which we would be rudderless in a sea of confusion. Into your hands we commit our weak, childish minds for your patient guidance. In Jesus' name, amen.